Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Zycam. I get sick a lot. I always have a cold in the winter season, and I take Zycam all the time. At the first sign of a cold, at a cough, at a sniffle, I'm taking Zycam in the morning. This winter, trust Zycam to knock out a cold at the first sneeze of the season. Other cold medicines only mask cold symptoms, but Zycam is homeopathic and clinically proven to shorten colds when taken at the first sign. Not only is Zycam cold remedy safe and effective, but the assorted fruit medicated fruit drops are delicious, and they come in orange, lemon, and cherry flavors. You can find Zycam cold remedy products at all major retailers, including Amazon. Visit Zycam.com slash Chang to receive a $2 coupon on your next Zycam purchase. And now, the Dave Chang Show. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thank you to Yola Tango, as always, for letting us use their music in the introduction. I think there's a couple shows left at the Bowery Ballroom for the annual Hanukkah concerts. Uh, Unfortunately, I've missed all of it because I've been spending most of my time in the West Coast, in Los Angeles, and more specifically, Las Vegas, trying to help our teams get Major Domo Meat and Fish open at the Venetian Sands Palazzo in Las Vegas. We're taking a lot of the DNA in our downtown Los Angeles restaurant, Major Domo, and bringing it over and making a little bit more meat and fish centric. And it's going to be celebratory and fun. But man, it is so brutal opening a restaurant. And I've been really beating myself up because I think I've stumbled at communicating a lot of the ideas. And it's stressful and I need to do better. And we're going to talk about this at length in a couple weeks when we do a pre-opening diaries of Major Domo Meat and Fish with a lot of the team there. But in the meantime, we're going to take a couple weeks off after the podcast, this week's podcast, because of the holidays. So wish you guys a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year. And uh, we'll get back to you with a pre-opening diaries, and hopefully the restaurants will be open by then, and we will all remain sane and calm and not as anxious. And every fucking time we open a restaurant, I'm always telling myself, going to keep my shit together, but I don't know if I'm ever going to be better at opening up restaurants. It's so hard. But this podcast is not about opening up restaurants. This podcast is about the new book by journalist author David Epstein, who wrote a book called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And this book was incredibly moving to me. The book itself uh, is in my hand, and I have so many notes. I don't think I've ever taken as many notes in a book in my life and earmarked pages. It was meaningful because I felt seen in a lot of ways at the age of 42, wherever I am in my life. It still doesn't make sense, but there are many points in my life when I was younger where it was not just in my head, but whether parents or teachers or friends that pretty much were like, what the fuck are you doing with your life? You're wasting it. You're doing the dumbest shit. Why are you studying religion? You know, (laughs) why do you want to be a cook? Why do you want to do X, Y, Z? And I'm not sure if I believed in myself, but I definitely believed in sort of what they were saying too. And it's hard to have the confidence when you're trying to find your voice and find meaning in what you do. And uh, I don't know. I feel very lucky and fortunate, incredibly lucky for all the things that have happened. And sometimes I feel like it could be like Inside Lewin Davis, uh, one of my favorite movies of the past last decade. And I don't ever forget that. But the one thing I, I do take into consideration is when given the opportunities, I try to make sense of it by sort of trusting the process and 
I think sort of what the basic explanation of this book is, is that David Epstein is arguing very persuasively that locking yourself into one specialty or perspective can be detrimental to your long-term success. And on the other hand, studying broadly and being able to think laterally, which means like you can apply structure and lessons from across a variety of disciplines and fields of knowledge ultimately allows for more creativity and productivity and I think gives you more meaning because you have something to say. And that act of creation is a powerful thing. And there's many ways to get to an end goal ultimately, right? And I think that's sort of what the book celebrates is diversity. And it's something that I try to use as my sort of constellation for my moral compass to follow. And sometimes that's hard, but It's hard because I don't know if culture always wants to have diversity. It's an easier narrative when it's just one path and it can be a lonely road. And reading this book made me not feel so lonely to know that so many people out there that have been successful got there on their own accord by following their intuition and um, ultimately going against the grain of what culture and society thought of them. It's a fantastic book and I highly recommend anyone reading it, but I know that our listenership comprises a variety of people, but a good chunk of that is hospitality workers. And one of the questions and emails and advices I get asked the most is, how do I do this? Am I doing the right thing? And I, I can't answer that other than, you know, maybe maybe cooking is not for you, but it might lead into something else, right? And you never know till you try it. And as hard as it is, it's doing the work and following something that might make sense later. It's hard to connect the dots when you're in the moment. It's much easier when you're looking backwards. And um, I have a lot to say about this book, but I really encourage you guys to read it. I think we talk a lot. It's a long podcast, but we don't go too deep into the book. And I'm happy about that because I, I do think it's important to read and I can't recommend it enough. I've blabbered on too much. For someone that was shiftless and wandered around essentially for most of his younger life only to figure it out later, and I don't know still if I feel like I figured out, this book was great for me, and hopefully it's meaningful for you too. Without further ado, here's my conversation with David Epstein. I love the book. Adam Grant sent it to me. I read it in basically like a night and a half. And the first thing I thought when I read this was, this should be required reading for all chefs. Wow. I, yeah. that, that definitely would not have occurred to me. So I'm really absolutely interested to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, sounds crazy, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, uh, I listened to Zach Lowe a bunch because he's done a, st- a lot of stuff with Bill Simmons and there were a lot of sports analogies in the podcast you did with him. But when I was reading the book, the first thing I sent out was an email to my staff saying they should read this book. We should give it to all the chefs. And I think we're in a place in the culinary arts where a lot of aspiring cooks and chefs are wondering what's at the end for them because maybe they've done it for six to 10 years and they're not exactly where they should be. And I always ask myself, why is it that I'm a little bit more successful than others when other people I think are more more talented than myself? And I tend to look at the people that are successful in this industry. A lot of them are self-taught. A lot of them had a variety, a variety of skill sets developed before they started cooking. 
And it's not to say that people that only cook their lives aren't successful. They are, but they're not as many in my opinion. How do you explain this? Yeah. Oh, that's the big, how do I explain that? Right. That's sort of the, the question <laughs> at the, at the heart of the book. Right. And, and I think as you alluded to, there are as many ways to be successful as there are people. Right. And one of the arguments I make is that we have overvalued that choosing early and, and narrowly, you know, as early as possible and focusing in narrowly as possible. And in fact, as the world's become more complex and problems are interdisciplinary and businesses are interdisciplinary uh, and people need to keep reinventing themselves and the work that they do over their career, um, that can actually, uh, it actually creates advantages for people who are broader than specialists, right? Who can, who can see uh, how to integrate different domains of knowledge and things like that. And, and I think it's sort of twofold. The, the main, if I had to put into two major buckets, sort of the, the themes that came out of the book. And for me, if I were going to make like a totally unmarketable, but, but in some ways near to my heart subtitle for the book, it would have been like, why sometimes the things you do that, that seem to give you a head start or cause the fastest short-term advancement can actually undermine your long-term development. Whether that has to do with the way you choose a career, um, you know, the way you progress through your career, the, the way you build your skill set, the way you build your network. And so sort of the, the two buckets, I think, are one is, is how you fit with the thing you're doing in the first place, right? Is, is the advice most people get is to pick something early and just stick with it, even if they realize it's, it's not the best fit for them. But it turns out there's a huge amount of research on what economists call match quality, which is the degree of fit between your interests, your abilities, and the work that you do, which turns out to be incredibly important for your performance uh, and, for, and for your sense of fulfillment. And the only way you figure out how to improve your match quality is by acting and then thinking, essentially. Doing stuff, reflecting on how it fits your interests and abilities, and then zigging and zagging in response to that information. It, it may be that right out of the gate, you find something that fits you well, but the odds are that that's not going to be the case. And your insight into yourself and your talents is actually constrained by your roster of previous experiences. So if you haven't done some things and learned about yourself, the chances that you're optimizing your match quality are low. That's on the one hand, figuring out what you want to do. On the other hand, there's this issue of um, being able to integrate multiple functions, right? Like we break the world down into, you know, I'm a science writer. And so I see the world broken down into all these little disciplines, right? But disciplines are a necessary evil, basically, of making the world comprehensible. Somebody has to put the world back together again at the end to, to function and to, and to do um, unusual things. And it turns out that the people who have kind of dip their toe in a variety of areas um, or who have this sort of incessant curiosity that leads them to keep trying to add to their toolbox are the ones who can see connections in a way their more specialized peers miss, basically. And so they, they tend to have a, a long-run advantage and sort of stay off plateaus because they keep adding to their toolbox. It's such a hard piece of advice to give to someone to That's be right. like, listen, it seems paradoxical, but you're going to have to eat shit and yeah. you're going to have to really suffer how do you how do you sugarcoat that to yeah, someone? No, all of these I gotta say are like great great book subtitles for range. Like you're gonna have to eat shit. How do you sugarcoat that? Right? Like these are these are sort of themes of the book that you know for various reasons I don't write them that way, but just, <laughs> yeah. that, that you've that you've captured in some ways more eloquently. Um, but that 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 really resonates with me in a lot of ways. And so I think of which which point to bring out first. Right? So. Um, I feel a lot the same way as you. And, and I, th I do think luck is important, right? Like you have, you, you want to have some good luck. But um, I was living in a tent in the Arctic when I, I decided for sure to become a writer, right? And, and when I realized I was starting to have more insight into myself and I'm asking myself, 
you know, I'm training to be a scientist. Am I the type of person who wants to spend my whole life learning sort of one or two very narrow things new to the world or shorter spans of time learning things new to me, maybe synthesizing them in new ways and sharing them? I decided I was definitely the latter. And I sort of viewed my science experience as, okay, that was good because I learned about myself, but also that was a waste of time, right? Because now I have to get into writing and I take a bunch of crazy jobs. Like for a while, I worked as the midnight to morning guy at the New York Daily News, pretty pretty close to here. Um Nothing happy that's going in the daily news happens between midnight in the morning. But you couldn't um, pitch that to someone to be like, this is the job you should get. Oh, I pitch it to people all the time. Nobody takes me up on it. People that want to get into journalism, I'm like, do I know this isn't the job you want ultimately, but this will give you tools that and you're not going to get to anywhere else. I mean, may, maybe one, like it's, they, they want to go, you know, th- this, this relates to this thing that Ian Yates, who is, is, yeah, I think one of the world's best sort of coaches and, and, and talent development guys in sports. And he says, the problem I have now is parents come to me saying they want their kid doing what, you know, ex-pro athlete is doing now, not what ex-pro athlete was doing when they were 12, which was like screwing up and, you know, and dabbling in all these different sports. It's the same thing. So I'll say like, this will build your toolbox, but they want to go directly where they want to go right away. Right. So, so when I come off of science, series of weird jobs, end up at Sports Illustrated as a fact checker, like temp fact checker right? Year-long Brooklyn lease, six-month temp job. And the I'm like six year, five, six years behind people that I'm doing that fact-checking for and start to realize that if I take my very ordinary, you know, in the context of other scientists, I was ordinary science skills. Then you take those over to a sports magazine, suddenly you're totally extraordinary, right? So you can leverage these skills. And I think my whole career has just been taking something that's kind of ordinary in one area and moving it to another area where it's, where it's less ordinary and doing that over and over and over. But again, it's really hard advice to give because I was behind until I wasn't. And I, I'm guessing you felt like that sometimes too. Like you're behind until you're not suddenly I still, not. I still feel that way. So, yeah. Really? Um, but you also were a competitive runner, right? Yeah, yeah. How does that translate? Like, yeah. Oh, by the way, but before we go to that, one other thing that, and I might add this to the afterword of the book, LinkedIn recently did some research on a half million members and found that the strongest predictor of who would go on to become an executive was the number of different job functions someone had worked across in their field. But are we going to go, if you go tell someone like, all right, go, go work a a bunch of different job functions in your field. Are they going to listen to that? Probably not. Probably not. I would say that you should. Absolutely. I mean, the the LinkedIn chief economist main recommendation out of this research was if you'd like to become an executive, work across a lot of different job functions early in your career. I tell every single person before they enter the culinary arts, wash dishes. That's it. If you can't love or learn to love this, this is not going to be the job for you. I mean, similarly, had I not been, you know, obviously working in science, but had I not been a fact checker or a street crime reporter, zero chance I, I would have done what I considered to be my most important projects. Because it was those skills that they broadened my, I knew they were broadening my toolbox, but I didn't realize how they might come in handy later. Um, you know, as I'm sure most people that you would tell to start washing dishes would, would feel the same way. Because I think whether you're learning learning the graveyard shift and doing fact reporting and all these things and fact checking, excuse me, there's that sense of um, repetition and just doing this meaningless grind, yeah. almost like an yeah. existential dilemma, like yeah. in your job. And I, I, I wonder how much of that has to be learned from the, you know, your early years, your formative years as an athlete, where you're, you, you said you're a runner. I played competitive golf. That's all I did like 360 days a year, maybe five days for holidays. And I didn't want to do it, but you learn that that's just, you just have to like put time and effort into something, whether you want to do it or not, that's what you have to do. I find that in the 
in, in the culinary world for those people, not everyone, if you didn't play a competitive sport or whether you played it into or not, if you didn't do something that was sort of meaningless, it's hard to really appreciate this job as a cook or as a reporter or something where you just start doing something over and over and over again without seeing immediate results. Totally. And I mean, that's right. That's, that's again, this idea that I said, this tension between what people want right now in the short term and what we know about long-term development that involves a lot of these zigs and zags and self-learning and experimentation and failure, right? Like the research on this is really clear. The people that produce blockbusters, um, you know, in, in all of the arts particularly, but also in science, have more failures than their peers. It's just they don't, you know, you only really pay attention to the big successes. Or in my case, like we, pretty much nobody gets to see those failures, right? Because they, an editor tells me they're failures first or whatever the case, or I realize that. And so I think going through this process, like there's no way to short circuit that process to greatness. I think there's, there's absolutely no way to do that. Um, and like you said, I mean, I think I learned a ton from running. Like so, so much of this, you know, people see if they, if they want to be a chef or an entrepreneur, they see what you're doing now, Right. Um, or if they want to be a writer, maybe they see what I'm doing now. They don't see any of the path we got to get there and all the stuff that like we're doing in our alone time, which is when I was a runner, I was training for the half mile. So it was like, you know, races were less than two minutes. And so all of the time that's going into this very short thing, nobody really sees. And, and in fact, in some ways I was a walk-on in college and I, I ended up leaving as a university record holder, but it was a, it was really a blessing in disguise to be a walk-on because Nobody cared what I was doing. They didn't need short-term results from me because I, I was not expected to help the team. And so I actually burned two years just screwing up my training and figuring out stuff that didn't work for me so that I could kind of figure out stuff that did work for me. And when I did, it was like, you know, take off like, like rocket fuel. But it was those two years where I was allowed this experimentation um, that you would be hard-pressed to ever advise someone to suck for two years, you know, en route to figuring out what works for them. Do you think that you would be here today if you were— considered one of the top runners in the country and you were, you know, it's just so funny how it works yeah, out. No, no, I don't. I mean, I don't know the counterfactuals for sure, but um, I don't think so. So yeah. it's really interesting to me that if you're too good at something, can it really screw you up in the, in the long run? If you're too good too soon, yeah. I think, right, where you're not forced to, you're not forced to learn about how you learn and to broaden your skill set and, and to learn other things. And, and, and one of the differences I think with with sports, right, is someone, like you mentioned, can be really good really soon, but they don't really know where they're going from the physiological standpoint, and so they can kind of get trapped in a trajectory. I think one of the good things about the wider world, or these in the book that I separate in, into what the psychologist Robin Hogarth called the kind and wicked learning environments, right? The kind ones are ones where the rules always stay the same, like sports, and it's based on repetitive patterns, and work next year will look like work last year. Wicked learning environments, which are most of us are spending our time in, work next year might not look like work last year. And I think that's more difficult because uh, you can't just count on doing the same thing over and over again and make the argument you have to be broader. But it also means uh, there are a lot more strategies for getting unstuck, I think. And so in this kind of wider world of work, that that continual altering yourself is, re is, is a really important thing. Um, and that when you're in danger of getting stuck in that way, there are a lot of options for changing direction in the wider world, but people usually don't do it because of what psychologists call the sunk cost fallacy. They say, I've started down this path. I already invested in it. Therefore, I have to stay, even if clearly it's not the right path. There's just an aversion to changing. Is there a scientific explanation for the 
allergic understanding of some cost? Is there, is like a bias that, you know, I put so much time into this. This happens again in, in my line of work all the time. I'm still guilty of it. Hey, we're going to open this restaurant. We put all this time into it. And then all the environmental factors change and variables are no longer the same. Yet, yeah. We just spent two years. We're going to go with it. Right. And I see this in sports all the time. And it's the people that like Bill Pelajek that are like, you know, I don't care. It doesn't work for us. Yeah. We're changing it. Right. Why right. is that so hard right. for everyone to learn? Right. And he doesn't care like if they're paying some, like he won't play someone because they're paying them a lot. Right. Correct. He'll switch to a lower paid person. Even Whereas like I grew up in Chicago, I used, I used, when I first learned about the sunk cost fallacy, I called it the bears quarterback problem <laughs> where they would pay the highest paid quarterback, not the one who was obviously playing. Better. And you have one in Mitch Trubisky right now. <laughs> hey, you said that I didn't. Um, but yeah, I don't know if there's a if there's an explanation for it from sort of the brain physiology standpoint, but but certainly it has been documented over and over and over as an empirical fact that this is a this is a function of human nature that basically nobody escapes naturally, right? It's it's such a prominent function of human nature that like con men know to operate on it instinctively where they will uh make a small ask at first and then slightly bigger and slightly bigger because once someone has invested some, they're much more likely to keep going like I'm already kind of in, so I might as well keep going. Even when to an outsider, it starts to look completely ridiculous, right? And even if they themselves, if they had come to it new, would say this is totally ridiculous. And and so without knowing the exact cause of what's going on in our brain, and this shows up in ev- literally everything we do, whether it's what we've studied, um, what we've invested our money in, is that once we've done it, we're more likely to say that everything will work out even as all the factors change and it clearly won't work out. And the deeper you get in, it's sort of a reinforcing cycle. The deeper you get in, the more likely you are to do that. So it makes change very difficult. So what are some tips for people? How do they have the awareness to be like, wait, we're all in agreement here. This is problematic. Yeah. I mean, first, I think they need to have some outside eyes on things sometimes, right? Like that's what happens with some of these scams that otherwise very bright people get taken into. Someone from the outside can come and see like, that doesn't make any sense, right? So they want to have mechanisms for for getting other people's feedback. Um, but also I think being cognizant of it is a first step and evaluating and saying, you know, if I were starting from scratch now, would I still be doing this? Or is it just the feeling of loss if, if I went away from this? Um, and I didn't think in these terms when I was sort of career changing, but because I didn't know that about the sunk cost fallacy, but I certainly recognized this tension between, well, I've already put time into this. Do I really want to change? And that's what everyone was telling me. Even though I'd put in only a couple years, you know, into training as a scientist and and your work life is however many decades long, mentors still tend to give the advice of, well, you've started down this path, so you should keep going down it. So I think we just need to be aware um, that that's our proclivity Isn't that and that's our bias. dangerous advice, though? Because it can seem like you're the kid that plays an instrument every other month, and we should be encouraging that? Yeah. No, I think it's. I think there's a—and this gets to a question of that I've had a lot because I wrote about grit with, uh, you know, most associated with Angela Duckworth's work. And the question is, when does it make sense to quit something and change? And I think that's like, I don't think I can perfectly answer that. I don't think Angela can perfectly answer that. In fact, the week that my book came out, I subscribed to her newsletter. And, and the week my book came out, her newsletter was titled Summer is for Sampling. And it, it was said basically, you know, of course, young people should use the summer to just try a bunch of different things because you don't want them to be too gritty or stick with the same thing before they know where they should be applying that energy. And she says... She she talks about her own career and says it took me a decade to figure out where I should apply my apply my grit. And the question that I think she gets a lot is, but how do I know if the kid's just quitting because like they're frustrated, right? And 
And what she has said in some cases is, well, I don't let my kids quit on a bad day, right? But then again, what if they're only having bad days? And do you want them to quit on a good day in that case? So I think it's a very difficult question. I think that's where a couple things come into play. One, coaches and mentors. That, that I think is the central art of coaching and mentoring is whether it's a specific type of training or practice or a specific endeavor, someone who walks the walk with you as you try to figure out you know, whether, as athletes would say, you're hurt or injured, right? Whether you're, you're just frustrated or whether you really need to change what you're doing. Um, and I also think people need to have systems of reflection. So in my first book, I wrote about something called the Groningen Talent Studies, these studies in the Netherlands that followed kids from age of 12 in classroom and sports. Some of them went on to be pro athletes and all these things. And, it, and what they were looking at was, you know, when people have a certain level of ability, what separates the people who get stuck on plateaus from the ones who keep improving? And one of the most important factors was what's called self-regulatory learning, which basically means you're taking responsibility for your learning. You're constantly reflecting on what you just did and, and what it says about yourself and reappraising it and how you can adapt that knowledge going forward. And so those people are constantly saying like, here's what I just did. Here's how it worked out or didn't. Here's what I learned about myself. And here's what I'm going to try next going forward. And so they don't just do the same thing over and over. And they're, they more readily realize if the thing they're doing doesn't work. And so I think we have to have these systems set up for uh, for reflection. The, the, the woman who ran some of these studies named Mariah Elfring Gemser, she, she told me if she had to sum up her advice in one word, it would be reflection. We don't do it enough naturally. So we need to have these systems set up so that we know when to change. I have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, and I'd love your opinion on it. Number one is I was a religion major and I studied a lot, came from a very religious household. One of the things I learned in college was like a lot of Zen Buddhism and how it trickled into mainstream sort of culture, particularly through Toyota and how they incorporated Kaizen and Hansei. Kaizen is uh, every day we basically try to get a little bit better. And Hansei is the most important part because I think the world at large tends to celebrate Kaizen because it's like more marketable. But mm -hmm. Hansei is the more important thing to me, which is reflection. You better know mm -hmm. what the hell you did wrong in order to do it better. And I don't think I... You know, when I wanted to become a religion major or just study religion, everyone's like, you're an idiot. Why are you going to study this? And I can't tell you every day there's something that I studied in college that is more important than ever before because I studied something that a lot of people don't study. And that's given me a competitive advantage, I think, in cooking, of all things. Uh, secondly, on what you were saying in terms of grit, I wanted to know your thoughts on setting up programs or ability to reflect upon how hard someone works. The chapter you have about Van Gogh, where basically it ends is, is like, I didn't know how hard he worked, right? You hear about him sort of meandering through life mm -hmm. in a variety of different ways. I had no idea that he attacked everything with this ferocity that I just didn't realize. Is that the best way to sort of encourage people to try many different things is to judge how hard they are pouring themselves into it. And if they do quit immediately, it's like, that's a good thing. Yeah, that's a great question. Because I would say one of the reasons I used Van Gogh is one, because I also didn't know a lot of this stuff. And so I started researching it and, and was fascinated to learn about him because he sort of had five careers, um, each of which he deemed like his true calling before flaming out spectacularly and nearing the age of 30 you know, with no possessions or achievements and unsure what to do, picks up a book called The Guide to the ABCs of Drawing, you know, and that, that obviously works out okay in the long run. Um, and I thought he was representative of this research I was reading where economists and statisticians were modeling like the, the best 
sort of habits of mind and behavior for trying to improve your match quality in work. And essentially, it amounts to, you know, I'm boiling it down a lot, but to jumping into things in a way that gives you the biggest signal of how that field works and, and how you fit with it, and then switching in response to that information. Um, and so, you know, what we often call people young and foolish, like when they're doing that, it's actually like they should be doing that and they should go into the high risk professions early and get a sense of like how those things work. And what Van Gogh did is he would throw himself into something and in every, every, he's as like one of the most documented lives, you know, with all these letters. So it's just incredible to read about his life. And he, everywhere he worked, people around him, even if they didn't like him would reflect on his work ethic. Right? When he would, he would always decide that working harder was going to be his advantage. Like when he decided he was going to uh, try to be a pastor, he decided he would wake up earlier than his peers and study and, and stay up later. He made a hat with lights on it so he could study at night and all this stuff. And every time it would, it would turn out that it just like wasn't the right fit for him for a variety of reasons. And so while I'm hard pressed to tell people to jump into things quite as voraciously as, as he did, um, I do think there's something to that, this where you really uh, jump into something with a willingness to fail at it because that's really how you get the most rapid signal about how that fits for you. I think it's totally fine to dabble in stuff, especially like as we get older, where you can start to dip a toe in something and run these small experiments. But at some point, especially earlier in your career where there's less on the line, I think jumping into some things and trying to get as much signal as you can as quickly as possible is actually in the long run really effective. I couldn't think of anything that's the best way to describe this to people, right, than what you just said. And again, in, in, in the world of cooking, I tend to look at individuals or, that are trying to learn this profession as who is jumping in and tackling the hardest fucking thing humanly possible, like right off the bat, knowing full well that they're going to probably move on pretty quickly. Like whatever station in a kitchen, there's a variety of things to learn. I'm always looking for the person that wants the hardest challenge, the thing that's so hard to learn first and foremost, rather than the easiest thing to start. And they're the people that almost always wind up being the best chefs Hmm. because they have the grit and the determination. And it's a job that they know they're probably going to have for like three to six months anyway, but they don't care about the easy stuff. And I want to know how to sort that out better or, again, to create programs where people can learn. We've had Angela Duckworth on this podcast, and I'm really trying to figure out better ways to teach that. I don't know if grit's the right word in this regard. I really think it's a celebration of suffering. Yeah. I love that. Actually, you made me think of some things I haven't thought about in a long time. And one, obviously, you're very—I don't know if this comes to you naturally or has come from the zigs and zags you've had in your your own life— um, and all the different areas, you know, and you've worked a lot of different jobs and even from, from your reflection in golf, you're very reflective yeah. um, on the things <laughs> you're doing, obviously. And again, this, that's sort of self-regulatory learning to some people. It comes naturally, like a lot of things to other people, they have to set up systems for it. Um, but that reminded me of, so I, I got involved in one of the things I mentioned in range that sort of inspired me to take it on as, as a serious project was this involvement with the Pat Tillman foundation, where I got involved with, um, military veterans and spouses who are, uh, getting applying for scholarships to change careers, basically. And one of the interesting things was, you know, so I, so I started to meet a lot of people in the military community, and a lot of times they're applying to grad school, and they're these fascinatingly interesting people, and they've had these experiences that, like, you'd be hard-pressed to replicate in, in most other ways, but they often don't see them as valuable, so they downplay them. Um, 
and when it comes to their essays, like sometimes I'd get essays from them for grad school from not necessarily from the Tillman scholars, but just veterans in general. And they'd say, you know, can you make this better? Cause I'm applying to grad school. And I very easily could have taken that and like edited it and made it better. But instead, you know, over time, what I came to do is say, why don't you talk this out? Like dictate it into the memo uh, app on your phone before you start writing and then, and then go writing. And you'd see like this total change where it would go from this first thing they wrote that was like this incredibly formal language, often with lots of jargon that the people they were writing for wouldn't understand to something where they were just speaking much more freely and storytelling in this way. And, and so far I've found that to be kind of effective, whereas I could have just written it, rewritten it and made it better for Mm them. Um, but but maybe this actually gives them a tool they can keep using. Like, oh, I should talk this stuff out first to, to see if I'm explaining myself clearly and then write it down. I think at least one of them even started talking out his full essays and then writing that down exactly and starting editing from there. But it's similar in that sense of I could have just gone in and just made it better. But I actually think that really short changes them right. in the long run. I have so much to say because this book, I mean, I won't even show you the book and the notes that I wrote in the book because— Why not? There's so much shit in this book. <laughs> yeah, like, but this is you, you, I wrote so much shit in this book. Like should I spend most of my time like in a room alone in my own head, like knowing <laughs> that somebody actually like writes in the thing is a pleasure. No, really, it, because I had never really read anything. Yeah, I there were other books, obviously great and all these things, but for me to see and read something that resonated with other people, you did so much research about all kinds of people that you know in a certain cultural view, they would never have been appreciated or never been given an opportunity, whether it's a, yeah. a musician that never picked up an instrument till later in life or an artist, all of these things where I'm just like, oh, thank God. It's just someone that is seeing something in a different perspective. And what I wanted to ask you was, in your research, did it, you come to a better conclusion that so many different opportunities that are missed for people, like lost opportunities that never happen are because of cultural truths that are wrong? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's really, so I think it's like culturally telling. I didn't mention this in the book, but everyone knows the phrase, jack of all trades, master of none. But I think it's very culturally telling that the end of that phrase is actually oftentimes better than master of one, which we have completely dropped, right? Like, so we just truncated it to fit our, um, you know, our needs. And again, everyone's specialized to one degree or another at some point or another. Um, but I think we miss a lot. And and this is a case, not to keep making these analogies, but we're both interested in sports, where the the teams and 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 even, you know, leagues or sometimes national sporting bodies that are, I think, doing better are those that have realized you want to diversify the entry points into your pipeline. Because if you're just doing this early selection and just cultivating those people, you are missing most of the people that will end up being the best. So you want to just diversify all the routes. And I think that's what we need to try to do in everything. Not to say you need to prevent people from specializing if they really want to, um, but I think we need to diversify the entry points in everything we do. And one of the things I was hoping to do was uh, add a little weight to the other end of the teeter-totter where we have like the Tiger story and the Mm. Mozart story and those things that are so culturally powerful to the point where even people who don't really know the details have absorbed the gist of them and add some other stories uh, so that we can talk about those things without, without being embarrassed. I mean, one of the most interesting sort of recurrent feedback I've been getting from people often who are either really successful or fulfilled or both is I had been sort of feeling bad about my career trajectory or sort of like hiding it, right? Or in the book, I write about this research at Harvard called the Dark Horse Project 
where these two researchers wanted to study how people find fulfillment in their work. A lot of these people were extremely materially successful also, but that but the dependent variable was fulfillment. And it wasn't initially named the Dark Horse Project. What happened was as they were bringing in, you know, their first like 50 subjects, just giving them informational interviews. And these were all across careers, you know, piano tuners to engineers and entrepreneurs and master sommeliers and, and athletes and writers. Um, they would, the people would come in and say like, well, yeah, okay, like things worked out for me, but don't tell people to do what I did because I started in one thing, realized it wasn't a fit and then went to this other thing and, and dropped out of that and realized I had to start my own thing or, so, you know, I kind of came out of nowhere. And that's why they eventually called it the Dark Horse Project because not everyone, but the very large majority of their subjects all said like, don't tell people to do what I did because I kind of got lucky and came out of nowhere. But it turns out that's the norm. No one can tell you exactly how to get to the place where you'll feel fulfilled. You have to do some of that that zigging and zagging. The problem is it doesn't provide a single neat template to tell people to emulate the way that kind of some of the 10,000 hour story does where it's like, here's the template just follow that, right? Um, and so, you know, I hope I'm I hope I'm adding a little bit of balance to that, so people feel less self conscious about doing that in a way. I tend to think that it's it's also about inefficiency, and I celebrate yeah. the inefficiency. Yeah, and I and uh, I try to tell this to my team is like, how do we scale inefficiency? That's what I want to do. Fucking fuck efficiency. We know what that is. So when you were talking about the the founder of Nintendo. I don't know. Did he found Nintendo? Or he worked there. He 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 helped. He worked. There. He was actually only hired as a machine maintenance worker, right? Just to kind of give a little background yeah, story. Um, so, a man named Gunpei Yokoi, who sort of scored poorly on his electronics exams at university, and um, so he had to settle for a low tier job as a machine maintenance worker uh, at what was then a playing card company, um, founded in a wooden storefront in the 19th century, and and making playing cards with flowers on them for about a century. And he, so, and, and that was in Kyoto and his, his, his peers who did better went to big companies in Tokyo and the playing card company was in big trouble and he real, and he wanted to help. It had to diversify and he realized he wasn't equipped to kind of work on the very cutting edge, but that there was so much information now easily available that he could combine well-known technologies in ways that specialists were sort of too narrow to see. And so he first did that with some well-known technology from the calculator industry and some well-known technology from the credit card industry and made handheld games, right? And uh, this, this company, of course, from the 19th century was Nintendo, and Gunpei Yokoi uh, became the man who sort of helped lead its transition from playing card company to toy and game operation. And he, he developed what he, this philosophy that he called lateral thinking with withered technology. And, and that's a translation, of course, from Japanese. And what he meant was, by withered technology, he meant stuff that's already known. I don't want to reinvent the wheel. There's so much stuff out there. I just want to, lateral thinking, taking it from an area where it's ordinary and understood and putting it in another area where suddenly it's seen as invention. And so he just kept doing that over and over. And it's magnum opus, of course, was the Game Boy, which was technological joke in every way, 10-year-old processor, you know, screen looks like some kind of rotting green food, I'm sure you could describe better than I could. Um, four grayscale shades of, of, of graphics. And when it's coming out, one of his colleagues goes to him and says, we're in trouble. Sagan and Atari are coming out with competitors. And Gunpei says, well, are they color? The man says, yes. He says, well, then we're fine. Because he knew what his customers cared about was durability, portability, uh, battery life, um, game selection. And by using this well-understood technology, he like drew the whole game creation community onto his team because they could make games really quickly. Blew away the competition, became the best-selling console of the 20th century. Uh, I found my own when I was researching this in my parents' basement. Played a little Tetris, flipped it open, 
screen was getting light, admittedly. Batteries had expired in 2007 and 2013. So I was like, man, this thing, you know, so he, he knew what was important to the people he was trying to serve and that he didn't have to reinvent the wheel because there was, you know, in many ways, and some of the research I write about testifies to this, the essence of creativity is just taking things and combining them in new ways. And he saw that there was more opportunity for that than people were recognizing, basically. Powerful story, particularly for someone that, or someone that's listening as a as a chef or any creative endeavor. Do you feel that range? Can you have creative thinking in a contrarian perspective, which I to me is like my cup of tea? If you are like followed a linear path, I mean, I think it's harder. And and actually, you just reminded me of something else Yokoi talked about. Um, and he did a lot of his own writing, but I had it translated from Japanese. So some of it, I think, appears in English for the first time. Um, what he noticed when Nintendo started getting more successful was that they did start getting a larger number of young engineers who had traveled a more linear path and had a very concrete idea of what they should be doing and, and what an engineer looked like. And what he found was that that identity was so central to who they were that they would not really propose innovative ideas. Like that was, became so foreign to them that in meetings they would, everything was just like the status quo. And there's something called the Overton window. That's this psychological concept of the range of things that will be discussed. Right. And, and usually it sort of centers around the status quo and then other things that are easy to talk about. Politicians know well that if you say something unthinkable on the end of the spectrum, People might not adopt that, but they'll, it'll move the Overton window over to more unusual stuff. So Yokoi started going into meetings and intentionally tossing out stupid ideas to try to show, like, this is what the boss is doing. We need to open up our ideas. He was trying to cultivate this inefficiency in some of these meetings where people would throw out ideas that might seem crazy. Otherwise, they were just stuck in this certain path of— uh, you know, of, of thinking where a company, when it goes from being a small one where everyone has a stake in survival— to a larger one where everyone has a stake in their sort of protecting their rank and things can get really, really rigid and people are just fitting like square pegs into square holes. And so I think, you know, in the last chapter, I tried to write about how some people who are even from the outside, very specialized, like scientists and doctors who have been really successful have proactively created areas for this nonlinear thinking and inefficiency. Like the scientist Andre Geim does Friday night experiments where he says, no funding, no accountability. Everyone try something that interests you, right? And and some of those were goofy, like one where he levitated a frog with strong electromagnets because frogs in their water they contain are diamagnetic or pro- repelled by a magnetic field. And for that, he won the Ig Nobel Prize, which is for the world's, the, the year's silliest research. But then another one of these unfunded experiments started with basically ripping strips of pencil lead with scotch tape and led to the discovery of graphene, the world's first single atom thick material that's uh, stronger than steel, tougher than the Kevlar and bulletproof vests, electrically conductive, more transparent than glass. And for that, he won the Nobel Prize. And so all of this work, the silly and, uh, you know, the legendary, was occurring in this time that he set aside to do, like, unfunded crazy stuff. And that turns out to be, in some ways, not that extreme, but but representative of of a lot of the breakthroughs in that work, where, where it's people who have set up time to— to do things where they don't have any idea what they're going to find. So they kind of can't follow a linear path. Can you follow up a little bit more about that? Because in the book you talk about, you know, um, you know, expert analysts trying to predict the future versus oh, yeah, armchair, yeah. you know, people that are just curious. Yeah. Yeah. This was a super interesting area of research uh, in, in the 10th chapter, which probably like zooms in on a particular individual's research more than any other. Um, it largely looks at this, 
t- famous 20-year group of studies that was looking at expert predictions about uh, geopolitical, economic, and technological trends, essentially. And what the research found, more or less, was that the worst forecasts were made by the most specialized experts. Um, to the degree where, like, the most specialized experts who had spent their entire career studying one or two problems, and they came to see the whole world through sort of one mental model or lens, and they just bent everything to fit that, the most specialized actually got worse as they accumulated more and more credentials and experience. And they would come to this, have this incredible tunnel vision um, where they just had this one mental model they tried to apply everything to. The good thing for them was some of them become very famous because it's it's very easy for them to talk authoritatively on, on TV because they have this like single mental model. Whereas the people who made the best predictions were typically often members of the general public who just had wide reading habits. They didn't have access to classified information like some of these experts did. Um, and they had they would go around gathering up mental models. So like the... Philip Tetlock, the researcher, one of the researchers who led this work, described the best forecasters as having dragonfly eyes. And by that, he meant a dragonfly's eye is made of thousands of different lenses. Each one takes a different picture, and then it's integrated in the, in the dragonfly's brain. They go around to specialists. They need specialists for information. They go around to them to get information, but not their opinions so much. And then they integrate those views into a forecast. And those people, I mean, they trounced even professional intelligence analysts who have access to classified data and all they had was whatever they could find like in public in the newspaper and stuff like that. But their key um, habit of mind was perspective collecting as, instead of getting dogmatic about, you know, the the method of, of research of one particular area, basically. When I read that, I wasn't surprised. Were you think most people would read that and be like, wow, I didn't, that's that's a total surprise. I was surprised. I was, I mean, that, that research has had a lot of influence on how I myself think. Um, because among other things, it showed that these specialized experts were also much more likely to, to when, when something led them astray. So some of the, the most specialized experts who were very esteemed would actually correct their beliefs in the wrong direction after they'd go wrong. So they'd make a predictions, they would go wrong again and again and again, and they would just keep doubling down on the same theories that led them to that instead of saying like, maybe I should inch back a little bit. And they were, they effectively never saw themselves as having, getting things wrong. Because they would always say like, well, yeah, but if just this one thing had gone different, I would have had it exactly right. Or like, well, I got the timeline, you know, I got it right, the timeline's just wrong, which means you're wrong if you're making a forecast. And so that's what you see on like lots of the business pages. They're like, this person's forecasting, like the market's going to turn down, but they won't put like a timeline on it. And you're like, well, yeah, at some point it's going to turn down. And so that was a bit of a surprise to me because I just naturally thought that the people who, I don't know, were had the most awards and credentials were the ones who would be the best at predicting in these complex areas, but it turns out that they can really be hampered by by being too narrow. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by the Google Assistant. The Google Assistant is ready to help you get more done with just your voice in the car, at home, and everywhere you take your phone. When you're cooking and you need help converting a measurement, just say, hey, Google, how many ounces in a cup? One U.S. cup is equal to eight U.S. fluid ounces. A little help, hands-free. Just say, hey, Google, to get started. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. It's a new year, the perfect opportunity to take your business to the next level by hiring the right people. But finding qualified candidates can be challenging. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang makes it easy. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. 
With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Today's Day Chang Show is brought to you by Masterclass. Masterclass lets you learn from the very best with exclusive access to online classes taught by masters of the craft. I can learn how to make French food from Thomas Keller. I can learn California cuisine from Alice Waters. I can learn how to barbecue from the very best Aaron Franklin. It's the perfect, thoughtful holiday gift. With over 70 different instructors across tons of categories, there's literally something for everyone. And for a limited time this holiday season, buy yourself an annual masterclass all access pass and you can gift another one for free. If you've listened so far to this podcast about range by David Epstein, this is a great gift because knowing how to do a lot of different things can make what you're focusing on better. And I can't wait to continue to check out masterclass. I want to know how to take photography. I want to learn how to make film better. I want to learn how to do so many different things on the creative world better. And Masterclass is the perfect place to do that. The Masterclass app is accessible on your phone, web, or Apple TV. Each class is broken out into individual video lessons and downloadable materials so you can explore at your own pace. The All Access Pass membership gives you unlimited access to over 60 classes and 200 hours of lessons taught by the world's best. Masterclass is also an easy way to give a gift that's personal and meaningful, even for people who are hard to shop for. Go to masterclass.com slash Chang to get started with this limited time offer. Don't miss your opportunity to get the best deal of the year. Buy one all-access pass and get one free to gift. A masterclass.com slash Chang. And now, back to the show. Do you think that there is a correlation to that in being an extraordinarily good athlete? Like we were talking about like a Tiger Woods and you start off with talking about a Roger, Roger Federer who's obviously an amazing athlete to begin with, but to have that range that gives you that perspective, is there a correlation to being a bad coach too, right? Like, if you're so good at something, you never have the empathy. You never know why someone sucks at something, which is why I think partly, you know, jumping from field to field or instrument to instrument or whatever, um, it gives you an ability to understand why someone else may not like it or may not be good at something. Because if you're only good at something, how are you ever going to know why someone else may not be good at something? That's that's really interesting, right? Being being on the the early part of the learning curve multiple times. And in fact, again, something that I that I t- took out of the book, but yeah, absolutely, yes, I think that's right. And and I think there's a reason why, even though we have this intuition that like, well, the best players should just be the best coaches, that often doesn't turn out to be the case, right? It often turns out to be a player who is something more of like a grinder or a role player or those sorts of things, who had to kind of figure out how they fit in. And and this goes way outside of sports. So there's this really interesting research by a guy named Hyman Bass, who uh, I believe he won the National Science Medal, which is like the highest civilian, you know, like the non-Nobel, but the highest, like, um, sorry, not civilian. Math, like math, Fields Medal? No, this wasn't the Fields Medal. National Science Medal is like a specifically American thing for contributions to a field. He, he basically invented a branch of algebra called K-theory, but um, so he's, suffice it to say, he's pretty good at math. Um, and 
he got interested in whether the knowledge of, of people who are good at math, mathematicians, his colleagues, was different from the knowledge of people who are the best at teaching math. Hmm. And so he, he sort of uh, did this research where he would give both mathematicians and you know, teachers of varying success levels problems that uh, younger students had gone wrong on, sometimes, sometimes really, really young students, like things like 49 times 5, for example. It turns out it's something that, that young students get wrong a lot because they, they do the order of operations wrong. And, and he would ask, where did this person go wrong? Re- reverse engineer their mistake so that you can teach it to them. And the best teachers were much better than the, at that than the best mathematicians, including himself. Wow. So this, this knowledge of how someone else could go wrong, almost this like intellectual empathy or whatever you want to call it, turned out to be much more important for teaching than just the sheer amount of knowledge. Not to say knowledge isn't important, um, but these like you know, world-class mathematicians often couldn't reverse engineer like the simplest mistakes of younger students. Uh, and I think, you know, people, a lot of people who have taken like college level math or above kind of, kind of realize that in the way that they're getting taught <laughs> is that right. the person is not understanding where they might go wrong because that's not even in their mind anymore. Right. right? it's like, I think maybe when Michael Jordan was trying to mentor, you know, Kwame Brown, it was kind of like, just do it like this, right? It's like, just do it right, <laughs> right? That's something you take for granted once you become competent at something, I think. So I think, I know for me as a writer, it's been helpful to do things like um, try to help someone else who's earlier in their writing and, and remember some of those mistakes. Or in the, in the writing of range, at one point I got stuck with some structural challenge. I'd been doing um, some investigative reporting for a couple of years between books and that's very quote heavy. You know, for a lot of reasons, you want to use lots of quotes in investigative reporting partly because your lawyers want you to put things in other people's words if you can. Um, but in writing range, so I took this, I took this online fiction writing class, right? I have this thing I call book of small experiments where I force myself to try new things regularly and reflect on them. And one of those was taking this online beginner's fiction writing class. So here I am suddenly going from something related to what I do, but from an area where I feel really competent to one where I don't and just with other beginners. And one of the exercises was we had to write a story using no dialogue whatsoever. And for whatever reason, that like flipped this switch in my head that was like, I'm leaning way too heavily on dialogue in my manuscript. I'm using quotes to paper over stuff that I don't understand deeply enough. And I need to go back and figure that stuff out and explain it in non-quote narration so that it will be more clear to the reader. Because if it's not clear enough to me, it's certainly not going to be clear enough to the reader. And it was weird that it took me just like doing this random thing. That's not even what I was looking to get from it to kind of knock me out of the mindset of just doing over and over what I was already feeling competent at. Um, And so it took me going back to something where I was a beginner, you know, Mm. where I felt like a beginner to reverse engineer my own mistakes. Then maybe range is really just about having the innate ability to humiliate or have humility, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I wouldn't say innate because I think it's 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 developed for a lot of us, right? And and I think there's something interesting in people who, as they get more sort of objectively successful, either their imposter syndrome kind of like gets larger, or uh, but but you mentioned this, right? You're sort of like I won the lottery, like all this luck, luck and stuff like that. And I increasingly also realize the importance of luck in the things I do. And I think the people who have that perspective are the ones who have developed over time you know, this feeling of uh, how imperfect they are or, you know, how was the way that, you, what was the way that you put it again? This innate sense of 
like humility, like an right? intellectual like, humility. Yeah. yeah, like yeah. So I think it's an earned sense of humility. I, I mean, I, and again, I learned attention. that early on because I was a cocky little shit when I played golf. Till I realized I'm never going to be Tiger Woods. Not only am I not going to be Tiger Woods, I'm not even as good as my peer group anymore. That's a hard lesson to learn when you're like 10 years old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a yeah. really hard yeah. lesson because right. you're really self-centered no matter what you're yeah. doing at that age. Yeah, and you're like, oh mm-hmm. shit, I suck. And every time I've had something humiliating happen to me, it's because hubris developed. And that's what I'm always on the, on the, the outlook. I'm always looking for like, where am I fucking up? And, um, you know, that's, that's a hard thing. Again, I'm only telling you this because I, hopefully my own staff is listening to this because how do you get, this goes back to where we started and just some of the th- similar themes in, the, in what I talk about or want people to listen to in this podcast, selfishly for my own team uh, that, that work for us, is how do I get them to take the most difficult path? And oftentimes the most difficult path is to have an awareness of oneself that is not very flattering. And that can be, you know, I almost take it to, uh, you know, a pathological sense of like, I suck at everything. <laughs> Yeah, that that I don't know if I'd recommend that necessarily, yeah. but but I think we much more often err on the sense of of trying to get people to feel overconfident. Uh, you know, I I think there's nothing wrong at all with building people up and encouraging them, but I do think there's a danger of of extinguishing the part of your brain that's like I'm very imperfect and this is a lifelong process and I should always be like thinking about the things I'm doing wrong. I don't work in the kitchen as much and I don't onboard new cooks like I used to, but there's a question I would always ask every single person I would come on board and they'd be getting their station set up and getting their knives out. And I look at their knives and first and foremost, that's what I'm looking at. Did they sharpen their knives? If they didn't sharpen their knives, they're not getting a job, right? Because that was your one thing. That's your tool. And then depending on, their knife skills, that wasn't really what bothered me because if they had bad, bad knife skills, I think they could learn. It was surely about the attitude. And I would ask them, oh, still I will ask people, how are your knife skills? If anyone says they're great, I'm like, this is not going to work out. <laughs> and even if they were really great, they might work for someone else and yeah. flourish, yeah. but not with us. Yeah. I want someone that's going to say, this is, there's only one answer. I think they can get better. Do you ever get a very specific answer that's like, I'm kind of good at this, but this I really need to work on? Like this, or or is that would that be no, like presumptuous usually, for someone to interview like that? Two answers. <laughs> uh, they're not good, or mostly, even if they're bad, people tend to overcompensate and say they're really good. Yeah. And I know that's not true, but I just want someone that has the ability to be honest to be like, they get better. And I and anyone that says they're really good, I show them a video of someone from Japan and having spent time working in a kitchen in Kyoto. It's like. You think you've got good knife skills? You have no idea. There's a whole world out there that you have, you're, you're literally a beginner. And I just don't know how to impress this enough, all right? And your book is obviously one way and there's other ways, but that's where I, I have such a hard time articulating. It's like, just think you're not good at anything and work your ass off. Like, that's, that's like the only thing I ever say to people. And I tell people all the time, I'm not a good cook. They're like, well, you've you've won all these. I'm like, no, I'm not. I, here's for the record. I think I'm a really good cook. It just doesn't come naturally to me, and I work like a motherfucker to be better at it. And that's something I saw early on as a cook working in a really good kitchen. The variety of skill sets you have, 
you all are trying to get to this one end goal, which is a delicious product that gets to the kitchen pass and gets out to the, the dining room. And if you look at different people working the same station a variety of days, and they're in a, if you're in a really world-class kitchen, you're going to see a a variety of ways to make that food. And some really talented cooks may not have to get so organized because they're so fast they can just do it. I always studied the cooks that were not fast because they came in a little bit earlier. They prepped out their scallops a little bit differently. They were pacing everything out in their head so that they would save time because they knew they weren't as good as someone else. And not a surprise, they're always the chefs to me that are more successful because they're just more prepared. Like the tortoise wins the race. And I think, I think even though that's a parable that's been said time and time again, why do we not celebrate the tortoise? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just a, I think it's because one, it's just such a hard thing to convey to people that sometimes, I think it's because one, we're obsessed with precocity, right? As when Gladwell and I were having this discussion, he said like videos of young people doing things like ahead of when you think they should are like human cat videos. That's what he called them. It's like, right? It's, But I also think it's because our nature is to assume that what we see right now is a stable trajectory. So that if someone is ahead at whatever thing right now and someone is behind, those development lines will run parallel forever, right? And so the person who's ahead now will be proportionally the same amount ahead down the line. And it turns out um, that that is absolutely untrue, whether you're looking at uh, sports or, or, you know, totally purely cognitive skills or whatever, that trajectory is not a, is not linear in that way. Um, and that what we see today is not some stable trajectory, but I think it's, that requires like zooming out and, and thinking about development. It requires understanding that the way to make the best 20 or 30 year old isn't the way to make the best 10 year old. Right. Um, and again, that's something we've really seen in sports where you, where you can produce incredible, you know, eight-year-old teams and hamper those people's development going forward. But if the, if the coach of that team's only incentive is to make the best eight-year-olds, then, then that's what they're going to do. Uh, and so I think it's just a, it just requires something that is deeply, deeply counterintuitive for us. This idea that sometimes what causes the most rapid progress right now in front of my eyes can actually undermine long-term development. And that's why, and I mean, it sounds like some of what you, what you do as you study your own field is you collect strategies, right? You're like building up this, you're looking around you and seeing what other people are doing and how you can adapt that to what you're doing. And you're collecting strategies. You're not just going for the one that looks the fastest, right? And trying to imitate that. You're collecting all this stuff. And sorry, go ahead. Did no, you, no, I was going to say, I always go after what people are saying is dumb. <laughs> really? Because I'm like, why do you think it's dumb? And if they say, because it's always been this way, I'm like, oh, then we're definitely doing it then. That's that's funny. That was like one of the guys, one of the inventors I profiled in the book, Andy Outerkirk, who then studied innovators, says like he would take his ideas to groups of specialists. And if they were like, can't be done, he was like, perfect. That's like what I want to hear because there's some assumption, unless it's like physically impossible, yes. there's some assumption that they've taken on board as a, um, you know, like just a given without examining it. And, and by the way, like stuff that he developed is all around us in this room, in the phone, uh, you know, in the tablet. It's like he, he, he led the team that developed these films that bounce light around essentially in all of your devices so that it can be recycled and keep the battery life longer with, with similar brightness. And when he said he first had this thought about it and he realized that there were instances, you know, without going into too much technical detail, he he realized that there were cases of this being done in like the wings of certain butterflies that didn't have any blue pigment, but that 
bounced around light in a way that made them look blue to to one's eye, and even in the way that light is reflected through uh, water bottles. So he knew it was possible. So when he went to the group of, of specialists and, and, and proposed, you know, making films out of this that could be used in in products, and they said like, nah, physically impossible. He was like, that's great. That means like nobody else is doing this because if these people, one of them had just written a textbook about it, if they think it's impossible. And yet I know from looking at a butterfly that it actually, it is possible. We just have to figure out how to do it. Uh, so it's interesting to hear that approach. I, I paraphrase this from Emerson, who um, I studied a lot in college too, but he said like um, something along the lines of, I never know which vagabond holds the keys to my castle. And I think that's the way to look at most things is if you are open to things and you never know who might unlock something that you were missing, right? Um, and that's all I'm trying to do is to sort of not just waken someone else, but, um, but myself too. It's like, because it's your default setting to make it easier for yourself and to be closed-minded. And, you know, you talked about Tetris and the Game Boy, and I was just thinking— an example that I give to my cooks because after all these analogies that I inevitably give to someone, they're like, oh, would this fucking guy just shut up? That's what I imagine them saying is, how do I give them one example about why you should work harder and why it should be sensible and why it doesn't make sense why they wouldn't apply it to their own life or mm -hmm. their own profession? Because I, I think most people have played Tetris or a game similar to like that. Yeah, I mean, I've played hundreds of hours, probably you, Alan, your Game Boy as well. And it doesn't make any sense to me. And this is the real paradox, I think, of the human condition. We can play some game, and not everyone, but we understand it. We can play this for all this time. And the better you get in every level you clear, the harder it gets. Yet you still want to play it, even though you fail. And it doesn't make any sense to me. You play more, you spend more time, and it gets harder. There's no The reward is it gets more difficult. But we can understand that. Yeah. If it got easier, no one would play the game. But yeah. to me, that's just a metaphor for life, really, is you put time into something, it's going to get harder. Why should you expect it to get easier? And I think that's the the current conundrum we have with younger generation people is we're told this marking lie that everything should get easier. I mean, I think that's wonderfully expressed. And I think it's a problem not just for the younger generation, uh, just a problem for people in general. Um, and I also think I could have replaced Kepler with you in my uh, analogy chapter. Like it's, I'm, I'm, Im impressed. No, I think that was wonderfully expressed. Um, so yeah, so I don't, I don't want to adulterate it too much. No, because I, I just, I guess I'm asking over and over. It's like, there's got to be a better way to explain this shit to people. I don't. Maybe your book is the only way. I mean, that's what I was hoping. Right, like at the at the end of the book where I sort of set off this <laughs> section where I was just like, in in my last book, people kind of said like this is great really interesting like could you be a little more advice givey and i just like to go investigate things that i'm personally curious about draw the research together and then sort of assume that people will know how it fits into their life better than i would um but i did set off a couple pages at the end to sort of say like i get asked a lot what's the one sentence of advice i'm like well i probably wouldn't have written a book if i had one sentence of advice but also the one of the motivations of the book for, for me to do it, because I found it to be a very painful project, um, was that there is no one sense of advice for this untidy path, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, the one I sort of come up with at the end is I say, well, don't feel behind because again, we have to get out of that mindset that you're on a stable trajectory and you have to be ahead now because what so much of the research shows, and I look at this in areas from, you know, math learning to athletic development uh, is that head starts are often overrated. And in fact, in many cases, like undermine long-term development. So don't feel behind because- you don't even know where you're going. 
Exactly. And looking around, one of the other good things that the Dark Horses and the Dark Horse Project do is they don't look around and say, here's who's younger than me and has more than me. They look around and say, here's who I am right now. Here are my skills and interests. Here are the opportunities in front of me. I'm going to try this, and then maybe a year from now I'll change because I will have learned something about myself. So I think trying to embrace that mindset. But overall, there is no tidy prescription for this, uh, you know, taking this meandering path and self-development, managing oneself, as as Peter Drucker said. Uh, So what I wanted to do is at least put some evidence, you know, and I think the scientific research, I tried, the first year of a book, I, I don't even write, I try to read 10 scientific journal articles a day, every day for the year, most wow. of which never come anywhere close to the book, but that's, that inefficiency, right? Most of that is figuring out what's not going in, but I, I end up making this mental map and having a good sense of the field. Um, and so allowing that inefficiency is actually like my main competitive advantage that I'm, I'm willing to like do a bunch of the research that's going nowhere because that's how you find the stuff that other people aren't. Um, but how do you tell someone to do that? And that, that research was really important to me, right, in the book. But equally as important, I think, and I, I'm like very kind of self-conscious saying this as a science writer, were the stories in this case, because I think we need those. And I hope some of them resonate in a way that people carry them around in their head the same way that all of these ones that every single human being gets through cultural osmosis carries around in their head. So I think at the very least, I hope it it shows people that there are different ways and that they're not just the exception. Uh, and so that the people that are open to that might, might keep that in mind. It's very powerful stuff. Uh, I wanted to finish this on, on, on this chapter, even though it's sort of middle towards the beginning is the, the, the chapter where you talk about all the individuals that became sort of prodigies or geniuses at something later in life when they, for a variety of reasons, were unable to do something until, um, opportunity arose or where they play, played an instrument or um, picked up a paintbrush. Um, is there a, uh, a group of qualities in these later in life geniuses that you see that allowed them to be so great at something? I think one, and again, I'm, I'm speculating a little bit here, but again, some of those were the people were like people from the Dark Horse Project where they don't they don't fall prey to the sunk cost fallacy because younger people are ahead of them at the time right? If they are pursuing personal development, then they don't stick with something that isn't a good fit because if they veer, you know, and and this, it feels very personal to me again, where I like, I became a temp fact checker five, six years older than the people I was doing that work for. So it was very easy to say, I mean, I was behind at the time, you know, until I wasn't like you were until you weren't. Um, And so I think they let go of that sort of constant self-comparison or the sort of keeping up with the Joneses because those other people aren't you, Right. So I think they're much more apt to compare themselves to themselves yesterday than to someone else who is not them. So that's, I think, one aspect. Um, but also, I think, uh, a feeling unsatisfied with doing something that doesn't maintain their interest, basically, um, is... So, and, and by the way, this... I was recently at a... Uh, this is a little bit of a side, but related at a Motley Fool uh, event. You know, it's like the investing website. Mm. And, and so these are people who are really interested in investing in entrepreneurship and all that. And they took something from the introduction of range and put it for a, a uh, for like an audience poll. And it was, what do you think based on recent MIT and Census Bureau research is the average age of a founder of a fast-growing tech startup on the day of founding? Hmm. 25, 35, 45, 55. Something 60-some percent of the audience said just 25. And then 35 was second place, 45, 55. The answer is like 45 and a half. And these are people who are really interested in following companies and this sort of thing. And so I think we just have this this wrong idea in our head. And and while we, you know, laud 
uh, entrepreneurs, at the same time, we still only think of like the Mark Zuckerberg case, which like Tiger is the outlier, right? When he was 22 and he said, young people are just smarter, right? He didn't know any old people. So that, that was in his interest to say that. But I think the typical path is these people who are willing to zigzag and to change direction later. And that becomes a huge competitive advantage because you are changing in response to your lived experience. And if you're willing to do that, you'll make better choices. To, to go back to the Tillman Foundation again, I'm, I'm on the final, I'm like definitely the clown of the final selection committee. You know, it's like a three-star general and, and, and me and a couple other people. So, but, but I learn a ton from it. But um, when I first get these people's resumes, let's say, they went to high school or college, and then they went to the military. And because whatever job they had at first, they did not find fulfilling. So they go to the military. They end up, whatever, I'm just I'm making up a scenario as a translator in Afghanistan or something. And doing that, they realize that diplomacy is totally different than what they thought, or bureaucratic dysfunction is totally different than what they thought. Uh, and that, you know, serving people they now care about who they didn't know requires something that's not there. And so they come back and maybe they go to school for something else and start something different. And when you first see their resume— it looks scattered. And you say like, oof, this person's all over the place. Then you learn from people who work with them and you learn from them and you realize it actually makes a ton of sense. The, all these changes of direction are them responding to their lived experience by altering a choice based on things they have learned instead of saying, well, a resume might look better if they said, yeah, I've learned all that stuff, but I'm just going to keep forging ahead anyway. Mm. And so I think there's this, uh, and this worries me sometimes about things like LinkedIn, where basically you just you know, so front and center is the resume part and not that kind of narrative about why did people make these choices? Um, especially if we start automating that resume selection, then I'm really worried about it. But um, I think what I've seen in them is this willingness to use their experiences to change direction uh, based on that knowledge. Because if, if you're not willing to do that, then you're making the assumption that your choices won't get any better by learning and experiencing things in life. So I think if you're willing to, to make changes based on your experiences, that's a huge competitive advantage. Can you elaborate what you're so worried about? Because I think this gets at the heart of the issue too a little bit. Well, specifically, like as I've gotten invited to some conferences I don't usually go to, I've heard some companies talking about like automating how they sift through resumes and things like that online. And and to go to some, let me use an example from, from work in range that that I think gets at this, which is the work of Abby Griffin and her colleagues. Abby Griffin studies uh, so-called serial innovators. These are these are people who make repeated creative contributions to to whatever organizations they work in. And what she finds, you know, I pulled out some of the descriptors of those people from from some of her work, and it's like they read more and more widely than their colleagues. They appear to flit among ideas, which usually you don't think of as a compliment. They use analogies a lot. They have a need to learn from people outside of their domain of expertise. Uh, their, their network of people they talk to is, is broader than their peers, et cetera, et cetera. They repurpose things from one area into another. Um, and what she says, like usually it's just this sort of academic presenting of the results, but at some points she'll say like, dear HR people, when you define your job too narrowly, you are selecting these people out because they don't look like the square peg for the square hole. And my concern with if we think of uh, you know hiring too narrowly or define the job too narrowly, you're going to miss the people who have the unique experiences that are exactly what you're looking for, right? You're going to screen out. So what she found is these people often had to change companies a lot because they— they weren't really allowed that sort of lateral mobility or, or develop that range internally. So the companies just end up losing them. And so why should we allow those people, force them to like develop by their own initiative or by accident? Like if we want people like that, we should set up systems to allow those kind of people to develop. But we, we more sort of force them to just do it on their own initiative. 
I think that's very powerful, and it gets me to think about something that's happening in the food world. And if you talk to journalists or awards committees, they're all com- not complaining, but everyone's saying, "Oh, we're uh, where's the new?" Right? And I think we're at a place where it's hard to find the new because everyone's looking at the exact same thing, hoping for the exact same thing. So mm-hmm. the the quality of candidates is what you were sort of describing is not really there because there's no diversity in that, and. Hopefully, we're at a point in in the food world, which hopefully is a metaphor for other things in culture, that we're now beginning to look and focus our gaze on other places and things. And one of the things why I loved, again, this book was about late-blooming geniuses and such. Is there's a restaurant we've talked about on this podcast in L.A. called Spoon by H. I think Yinjin, the chef there, is truly a genius. I really do. She's not a a trained chef, and she'll say that I don't know anything. She has all the characteristics you talk about in this book. She was also a like a concert organist. She went to college in Oberlin. She was all these things that happened in her life. She did all these very different things, but she's got this crazy work ethic, and she's just meticulous. And first time I tasted her food, I was like, what is happening here? But here's the important thing. It's at a dessert cafe in a strip mall outside of Koreatown. And I was like, this is one of the best things I've ever had. There's no way this person isn't supernaturally talented. And there's got to be some life story that's allowed her to be this, this talented. But on the surface, there's every reason for everyone to say, this is, a, this is not, this doesn't exist. Most people wouldn't even mm-hmm. go there to eat, just to get desserts. But out of nothing, she's making the most extraordinary food. And people discredit it immediately. It's like, oh, this is a fad. And I kept on with, I tell people, I was like, she is the best talent I've seen in America in a long time. (laughs) But I was like, if we're just discovering her, how many other stories have Mm -hmm. we just missed completely? Because I bet you there's a thousand unions in LA alone. We just haven't given them the the soapbox that they deserve. So that's why when you were talking about that automation, I take it as like, wait, this is problematic. How do we create opportunities for people that are doing great things or didn't get an opportunity to play an instrument early in their life, but now they yeah. get to do it? So yeah. it's really important. Your book was very important for me to read. I, I really appreciate that. I feel honored to hear that. And and I think you hit on the head the fact that we we set up systems to create like narrow specialists and give people a head start. And in many ways, you know, teaching the narrow stuff in some sense, is the stuff that's easier to systematize later on. And and the people that are harder to develop that sometimes have this meandering, and, and uh, we force that to happen by accident, but we know we want it. And so I don't think it makes sense to force it to happen by accident if we know we want it, because then you're right, because how many of those other people um, are we not cultivating who we could? And I think about, uh, I'll finish this on one last sports analogy, you know, Lamar Jackson, Baltimore Ravens, probably going to hopefully win the MVP, Jim Harbaugh, threw away his entire sort of team philosophy to adjust it to this. Again, most people probably don't give a shit about the Ravens. And I keep on thinking, I was like, how many Lamar Jacksons have we missed? Because there have probably been several, but because they were a quarterback that were too athletic, which wasn't that long ago, which was a knock on a quarterback, I was yeah. like, this to me is just a, a microcosm of culture itself. 
Totally. I mean, the, the stereotypes of quarterbacks go way back, right? To yeah. this idea of of what a quarterback should be and look like and all those things. And I think we're, we're still only recovering from that. It, it's crazy how in something as objective as sports, how long some of this stuff takes. Like you think about, you know, the analytics revolution in basketball, and it was clear that people should be shooting a lot of threes way before they actually started doing it, right? So objectively clear, and yet it still takes time to to just reverse the mentality and change the mentality. And so, um, you know, I, I certainly <laughs> don't, don't believe that I can make a huge difference myself, but I hope it's like one, you know, piece in a mosaic that maybe, you know, other people who, who think but like you do. us. It's like, you, you say like, you have all this data to shoot three points, right? Like that's the best thing, but your book presents all of this inefficiency basically as data to be great. I hope that people take that as like gospel, right? That, that maybe even though it's telling me something that is counterintuitive, I should trust the facts. And I think your book is actually full of scientific facts. So again, I, I thought it was very powerful and it's why I encourage all my team and anyone that's listening to this to, to check out David's book, Range. Well, that was a podcast that I'm going to rank as one of my favorites because I love the book and David is a fantastic author with so many great ideas and I was encouraging him to do his own podcast. Another great podcast that is out right now and if you're in the culinary industry, and I'm sorry, I know we have so many people that listen to this that don't cook, but Bill has Adam Sandler and Kevin Garnett on his podcast and It's amazing. It's one of the best podcasts I've ever heard because I've always loved KG, but hearing Kevin Garnett talk about change and evolving as a young player that came from high school directly to the pros and on the Celtics and just sort of the work ethics and the attitudes he has, you know, there's a lot of similarities in my opinion to the culinary world. And besides, it's just a great sort of hour of poppy pleasure. So check it out after you listen to this podcast. But I wanted to get to a Ask Dave at MajorDomoMedia.com. I'm probably just going to pick one because this is a long podcast. Keep on sending them in to AskDave at MajorDomoMedia.com or give us five stars on our iTunes podcast page. David Coe asks, As a person from Hong Kong, I am no stranger to MSG, Norse chicken powder, and stock cubes. But from what I know, MSG can be obtained through tomatoes, mushrooms, kombu, or fermentation. Isn't using MSG crystals directly, just a shortcut? Well, David Coe, that's a good question to ask. And I would say yes and no. You can certainly make delicious foods without MSG. All I'm trying to always argue is that MSG should not be vilified as it has. And I know some chefs that use MSG, but some chefs that use alternatives like chicken powder, or they'll use mushroom extract, or they'll use uh, mushroom powder, excuse me, or yeast extract. And I think that Parmesan, you should ask the same question. Isn't it cheating to use Parmesan? Not necessarily, but sort of same in the same vein because a lot of people may not have access to that. So this is a much deeper, more difficult question to ask, but to answer, excuse me, but I think most of the chefs that I admire don't use MSG at all. But I will tell you, I know one three mission star chef that does use MSG in their foods. Is it a shortcut if you make everything from scratch, if you get the very, very best ingredients and everything's raised yourself and you add a little MSG, is that cheating too? I don't know. You could have had Parmesan. You could have had mushroom powder. I use it at home a lot of times because I'm pressed for time and it's economical. I don't know. 
David Coe, this is a much longer answer. So whatever I said, forget it. I'm going to have to do a whole goddamn podcast now directly to this question. So we will try to do a podcast about this very question. But this is a long podcast. I'm tired of talking. You're probably tired of listening to me. Stay tuned for a couple weeks because we're off next week for the holidays. Happy holidays, everyone. And we'll check you out in the new year.